holding fast to the greatest Jesus gives us the greatest confidence and hope. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 as we read God's Word together. Before we do, let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we can come and sit under the preaching of your Word. Father, we know that the efficacy of preaching is God the Holy Spirit working both in the preacher and in the hearer, making the preacher faithful, making the hearer faithful to receive God's word and opening our hearts to apply it. So we ask you, God, the Holy Spirit, do that work of grace in all of us this morning, that even as we hear your word proclaimed, that word might percolate in our hearts and do a work of grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Who is the greatest? On June 3rd, 2016, an article appeared in a newspaper written by John Shoup, and the title of this article was this, Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all time, dead at 74. Shoup wrote, and I quote, he called himself the greatest, and to many, he was not only the greatest boxer, but the greatest sportsman of all time. As great as Cassius Clay, who became Muhammad Ali, was in his own eyes and into the eyes and in the eyes of many others, his life story ends dead at 74. Even Moses, who is unquestionably the greatest of the Old Testament saints, his life ended similarly. You may recall his life ended on top of Mount Nebo, looking over the River Jordan to the Promised Land, a land that he was not permitted to enter And we learn in Deuteronomy that he died. He died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. As great as Moses was, dead on Mount Nebo. The author of Hebrews has argued thus far that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament as God's final word. Jesus is superior 
to the angels. We read about this in chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Jesus is superior as the founder of our salvation, and indeed, Jesus' salvation is not to be neglected. We read about that in Hebrews chapter 2. And in our text today, the author of Hebrews exhorts us, and the original hearers, as you remember, are those Jewish believers who were facing persecution because of their faith, and he exhorted them as they faced persecution. He exhorts us as we face whatever we're facing in our day to hold fast in confidence and hope. And the way he tells us to do that is this, consider Jesus who is greater than Moses. Indeed, Jesus who is eternally the greatest. And today's main points three, Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. God's house, the one church. And thirdly, consider Jesus and hold fast. So first, the author argues that Moses was great, but Jesus is greater. And the writer uses three comparisons to make his argument here. Look at verses one and two. The author compares Jesus' role as the faithful apostle and high priest of our confession, of our confession, you can just replace, of the gospel. And he compares Jesus in that role to Moses in that same role. Moses was great. Josh read from Numbers chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And the context of that passage is Miriam and Aaron who opposed Moses because he married a Cushite wife. And they were speaking out against him. And God rebukes them. He, Moses, is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And I paraphrase God saying, And what are you doing speaking out against Moses, my faithful and great servant? Hebrews picks up on this theme of Moses' faithfulness in fulfilling God's call upon his life because Moses served this, this dual function as apostle and priest. He was an apostle in the sense that he was sent by God to represent God to the people. He was a high priest, as we talked about last week, who represented the people to God primarily in the sacrificial system, offering sacrifices for their sins. Rick Phillips, in his commentary, observes this, and I quote, Moses was the only Old Testament figure to fulfill both of these functions, apostle, high priest. And as such, he pointed forward to Jesus, whom we proclaim as the apostle and high priest of our confession, end quote. Moses was great. Even the greatest of the Old Testament saints, he fulfilled the role of the faithful apostle and high priest, but he served primarily to point to the one who was greater, the greater apostle, the greater high priest, 
Jesus himself. Verses 3 and 4 asserts that Jesus has been counted more worthy of more glory than Moses. As a builder of a house would receive much more glory, the writer of Hebrews tells us, than the house he built. The author uses this builder imagery here to point to God as the builder who built through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul teaches us about Jesus being the founder, and we could say the builder of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, hear now this passage from God's Word. So then, you, speaking of believers like you and me, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the builder of the church. As you walked into the church today, knowingly or unknowingly, you passed a monument. And that monument is to my right, your left, on, on the wall beside the main doors coming into the church. And on that monument is this inscription, 2006 Covenant Presbyterian Church organized 1974 Soli Deo Gloria. Our first worship service in this sanctuary was May of 2006. That's noted on the inscription. Covenant was organized as a particular church in 1974. You'll see that on the inscription as well. But you might ask, why did the inscription not say that Covenant Presbyterian Church was established in 1974? And this is the reason why the inscription says organized and not established. Because as wonderful as our five founding members were, as great as our first pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church was, as stellar was that original session of Covenant Presbyterian Church, and as beautiful was that original congregation of Covenant Presbyterian Church, they did not establish Covenant Presbyterian Church. Who established Covenant Presbyterian Church? Who established the church? Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone from which the foundation is formed, the teaching of the apostles, on which the church is built. And the church is continuing to be built. And Covenant Presbyterian Church, being organized in 1974, our first worship service in this sanctuary in 2006 is, is part of that, that institution, that church that Jesus found, that Jesus built, and Jesus is continuing to build. That's why it says organized and not established. 
because we didn't establish the church, Jesus did. And that's our hope. As a particular church and as a member of the universal church of Jesus Christ. But the very architecture of this building, and I really appreciate Steve Kinsler and Jim Eubanks who were our architects, not only in the Fellowship Hall building, but also in this sanctuary. And the session sought to be very, very careful in how this sanctuary was built. In the very architecture of this building, we are directed to one thing, soli deo gloria, the last thing that is noted on the inscription. Look around, look outside. God's glory and creation is proclaimed. So we put up with the sun shining in on our faces for a while until the sun moves so that we can see creative God and his work and give glory to him. I would ask you to consider the massive arches that are load-bearing, by the way. They're not fake. And they are holding up this lofty, high-pitched ceiling that causes our praise and our adoration and our thoughts and our minds to transcend upward to heaven itself to give glory to God. I know this pulpit looks awful massive to you as it does to me. But we didn't design this pulpit just to have a massive pulpit that can't be moved for weddings, which it can't. Right, Olivia? Because the Word of God is central. And we are to receive it as the very Word of God. You see the baptismal font and you see the table. They're visible. They're alongside the pulpit. These furnishings are not here just for practicality, they are here to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the means of grace, the word, the means of grace, the sacrament. Here before you, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in these furnishings are communicated. You say there's no art in worship. I say, yes, there is. We don't have images, which is forbidden, but we do have the things that have been ordained by Christ himself, the sacraments and the word, to remind us and to be visible, even in the structure and furnishings of the church, to, to lift our hearts and minds to Jesus Christ, who is reigning now in heaven, to hear his word declared. Jesus is worthy of much glory. 
more glory than our lives, more glory than this building. He established it, and he has established us in it. Soli Deo Gloria. In all that takes place in this building, in all that takes place in our lives as the church going forth into the world each week, we are to give glory to God. For Jesus is counted to receive more glory than Moses, than us, than this building. He gets more glory than even the building that he has built. And as we think about the church, and as we think about our builder, I'm reminded of this passage of Scripture, Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's why the church will endure. I hear all kinds of things about the church in decline in our country today. And it is, in one sense, people are not coming to church. Members are leaving church. But the church will endure. And it will grow. May we take comfort and may we take heart in the fact that the five founding members didn't establish covenant. You and me aren't establishing covenant. Jesus Christ is the one who establishes his church. He protects her. He will make her endure and he will grow her for his glory. Jesus is the builder of the church. Then in verse 5, the the author writes and he compares Christ's faithfulness over God's house, over God's house as a son, to Moses' faithfulness, and the text says, and all God's house as a servant. See the difference? The son over the house, the servant in the house. The servant in the house is great, no doubt, but the son over the house is greater. The author tells us Jesus is over the house. He is the head of his church. Ephesians 5.23, Paul uses marriage to tell us about the church. Here's what he says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Jesus built the church. He established it. Jesus is the head of the church. It's his He's over the church. We're in the church. He gets more glory. But the author also tells us something else. In, in, in this, there's, there's a clear teaching that there is continuity between the work of Moses and the work of Jesus. For example, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15 made this prophecy there will be a prophet, and by the way, Moses is the paradigm prophet. He was great as an apostle and prophet. All the other human prophets were patterned after Moses. And Moses said in Deuteronomy, there's a prophet who is coming that is greater than I. Who is he saying is coming? Jesus. Look at the transfiguration, Matthew 17. 
Jesus appears in all of his transcendent glory. The very glory that we will see when we get to heaven and see Jesus there at the right hand of the Father. He was on that Mount of Transfiguration in all of his glory. And the three disciples were up there with him. And who accompanied the Lord Jesus in all of his glory? Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, representing the entire Old Testament. And that shouted, that proclaimed that Jesus fulfilled all that Moses represented and all that Elijah represented. Jesus is greater. That's what it was declaring. Because the promises in Moses and Elijah, the promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18 and toward the beginning of the Sermon on the, on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill the law. We need to see there's a continuity of the work of the Old Testament saints in Jesus, promise fulfillment. It's not some different work there and a different work there. It's all part of the same story. It's, it's part of that, that, that meta-narrative that we talk about, the big story of the Bible, that line that goes through every page of the Bible. Jesus. The Lord Jesus is that line that goes all the way through the Bible. The story is about him. Thus the author declares, Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses is great in the church, no doubt. One of the greatest, perhaps, who has ever lived in all of history, not just church history, but in all of history. He, is, he uniquely served faithfully in the house of God, the church. But his service was ultimately about one thing, and that was to point to the Lord Jesus Christ who would come. The greater one. In a very real sense, when we leave this place today and we walk out to face the world in the coming week, we should go with this mindset. My ultimate purpose this week is to point to the Lord Jesus Christ in how I live, in what I say, in what I think, in how I treat other people, in how I do my job, in how I fulfill my responsibilities. We're not big A apostles, we're not big P prophets, and we're certainly not high priests, but we are little A apostles in the fact that God is sending you and me out these doors. By the way, look at the monument as you go out, just to be reminded that Jesus has built this church, and you're part of it, and you're going out to, and I'm going out, you and I together, to represent him, to point to him. 
Well, the second thing I want to talk about today is God's house, the one church. You may be thinking, God's house, the one church. Where does that come from? I think it comes from the text. Second, having, having shown Jesus is over God's house, we, we turn to one of the implications of this text. God's house in which Moses served is the same house over which the Son reigns. And by the way, it's the same church in which you and I are members by grace. Dispensational theology teaches a discontinuity between the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. In other words, they, they, they would view two distinct groups here, the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament church. But considering what our author says, what is essential to his argument is that there isn't one people of God in the Old Testament and a different people of God in the New Testament. Rather, Hebrews tells us there is one and the same people of God in both Testaments. He, Hebrews refutes this dispensational conception of a discontinuity with regards to the people of God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Rather, there is continuity. There's continuity of the work Moses in Moses's work we see promise in Christ's work we see fulfillment there's continuity there there's continuity with the people of God one church one people of God throughout the ages that is essential to the author's argument Moses was faithful in the same church over which Jesus was the son and in which you and I are members by grace. And one reason the testimony of the Old Testament saints that we will get to in chapter 11 is such a great encouragement to us is because in Hebrews chapter 11, the saints that are portrayed there are members of the very same church that we're a part of. The one people of God. And we can learn from their faithfulness how to live faithful as members of Christ's church today. Having shown that Jesus' superiority to Moses, that he is superior to Moses, and the fact that the church in which Moses served and Jesus built and is son and head over the author now reminds us that we are members of this same church and this brings us to really the implication of this text today the conclusion of this text today we might say the takeaway of this text today and it's our third point as members of God's house we are exhorted in this text to consider Jesus and hold fast. The implication, the takeaway. Look back at verse 1. The author tells us that he is writing to holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. And what does the author mean by that? Well, I think he means that he's writing to those who are set apart for God as members of God's family and called to an eternal rest, that is, to inherit heaven. 
in summary what the author is saying by this phrase, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, he is referring to those who are united to Christ in saving faith and will spend eternity with Christ in heaven. That's who he's writing to. Those who are truly part of the true church of Jesus Christ. And I say truly part and the true church of Jesus Christ in light of the fact that there are many churches that may look like a church but yet are false because they do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. And there are some Christians who might make a false testimony. So the writer of Hebrews is not writing necessarily to the visible church, though in one respect he is, but he's writing to the invisible church, the true church, the, those who are truly saved and united to Christ. It is, it is to the believer that the writer cons, uh, writes and exhorts in verse 6. Look at verse 6 where he makes this conditional statement that, that could be confusing. He states, we are his house, all those who are truly united to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, who have been brought in by grace to God's house, the, the, the church that Jesus built, the church in which Moses served, but the church over which the Lord Jesus reigns and his head. He has brought those in and then the writer says we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope so there's a conditional statement we are his house if well is the writer saying we are his house if we hold fast and if we don't hold fast we're not his house no that is not what the author is saying the conditional statement is for our encouragement. The conditional statement is for our exhortation. The conditional statement shows that those who are in God's house, by grace, through faith, in Christ, are those who strive to hold fast by always placing their confidence and hope in Jesus. It describes who we are as true members of the true church of Jesus Christ. In fact, we can say, and this is a little bit of a paraphrase from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We could say that we are saved by Christ's work for doing good works. Well, I think what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying here in this conditional statement is that we are saved not because we hold fast, but to hold fast in confidence and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, the obligation that the author places upon us, we see in verse 1, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. 
contemplate him, recall what the Bible says about him, affirm what the Bible says about him, embrace Jesus as the greatest, the one greater than Moses, the one greater than the angels, the one who is superior to even the Old Testament scriptures, though they are the word of God. But Jesus is the final word. Contemplate Jesus, greater than Moses, as the apostle and high priest of our confession, the gospel. Consider Jesus, who was worthy of much more glory than Moses, as the builder of the church. Moses was a servant but in the church, but Moses is son with all glory over the church. Consider Jesus is greater than Moses and put your confidence in him. Now, why would the author speak in this way, exhorting believers to put their confidence in Jesus by considering him? Because you remember the original audience of the the Hebrews, the original recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians who were facing persecution because of their faith. And they were under a great temptation to revert to Judaism to avoid suffering. And I think we can appreciate where they were and the difficulty they were under. They were being tempted to abandon Christ, the greatest and go back again to confidence and hope in the Mosaic law. And thus the writer of Hebrews is saying, my beloved church, because this very well could have been a pastor writing to his congregation. My beloved church, place your confidence and your hope not in a great one like Moses, but in the greatest Jesus. And dear friends, my congregation, I echo the words of this pastor to us today. Put not your hope in government. Put not your confidence in your finances. Put not your confidence and hope in your job, in your family, in your schooling. Yes, those things are important. Put your confidence and your hope in the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, claimed to be the greatest. In February 1964, the famous I am the greatest speech was made by Ali. Just a week or so before becoming the heavyweight boxing champion for the first time, knocking out Sonny Liston. 
as great as Ali claimed to be and as great as many acclaim him to be, nonetheless, his life story ended dead at 74. Moses, I think an argument can be made that he, the greatest of the Old Testament saints, On top of Mount Sinai, he, he beheld literally the backside of God and survived. God spoke to him directly. And yet at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, what do we read of Moses? Dead on Mount Nebo. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to put our confidence and our hope in Jesus, the greatest in all eternity. His story does not end dead at. His story does include dead on the cross, buried, risen from the grave, ascended, reigning at the right hand of the Father, and coming again to consummate all things coming again to perfect his church and to take us home to glory with him that we would experience true worship true adoration true lifting up praise as the church, as our call to worship instructed us around the throne in heaven. Trust the greatest, Jesus. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I ask you to work your powerful grace in our lives today. Remind us that we are your church by grace and through faith in Christ. Remind us that our confidence and our hope is to be placed only in you, Lord Jesus, the greatest. Remind us that we have the privilege to go forth this week And in the weeks and months and years, however long has us on this earth to point to the greatest in how we live and what we say and how we think, that our lives would point to the greatest like this sanctuary points to the greatest, that we would point to the greatest, the Lord Jesus, who is one to receive all glory and honor. So work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.